Hello and welcome to the Tech Map Podcast. In today's show, we're looking at how do you grow and how do you scale an agency or a service-based business. And my guest on the show is Kristen Luck. And Kristen is a very smart lady based out in the US who has grown and sold several marketing-based businesses and now runs a consultancy called Scalehouse. And Kristen and I chat for about 40, 45 minutes about what are the things you need to do as a creative or an agency business to help you to grow? What are the key factors or the ingredients of success, if you like? And we cover things like, well, initially, of course, getting the founder out of the way so that you can allow the business to grow. And then we look at some of those factors that are important, like culture, like process and systems, and and the myriad of other things you need to address as an agency owner that's going to help you to grow and scale. So as ever, I hope that you take some value out of the show. Please let me know in some feedback or comments as to whether you're enjoying the content we're putting out and these shows are of value. And uh, let us know and we can obviously refine and change and tweak to make sure you're getting some value out of the podcasts. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy it and let's get on with the show. Hi, Kristen. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? Really good. Thanks. Really good. Thank you very much for joining me on the TechMap podcast today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I know it's a really early morning start for you, so hopefully it's not too painful <laughs> to be up and have a conversation with, with somebody in the UK. Yeah, this is the downside, I think, of living on the West Coast of the States is that most of the world is up before you. So I have lots of very early mornings. No worries. <laughs> I can well imagine. I can well imagine. So I guess let me frame the reason why I wanted to get you onto the show, because uh, part of what we talk about here on the TechMap podcast is marketing. And the other part is the business of marketing. And it kind of reflects our audience in that our listeners are either marketeers in-house or they're marketeers in an agency environment. And so we kind of reflect the shows for those two different audiences. And one of the things that I'm really keen to look at is how, as an agency, how do you grow? Because I think there's a whole army of agencies that get to a point where they are uh, earning a certain amount of revenue, let's say 500,000 to a million pounds or dollars, whichever is your currency. And then they, they kind of get to that plateau and, and they, it's hard to get beyond that state of growth. It's hard to go to the next level. And I've been following what you've been up to with you know, your business businesses and also your career because you've had a really interesting career. And I think it'd be I think you'd just be the ideal person to to have a chat with about that and to get some ideas for uh, what that next stage of growth might look like. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense to you and you're not sitting there thinking, why is this guy talking to me? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I mean, I do, you know, I scale businesses for a living now. So this is a perfect conversation to have. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So look, I know you pretty well, but our listeners might not. So why don't you tell us a bit about who you are, what you've been up to and how you've how you've got to where you are today in your career? Sure. Yeah. So I, you know, I started out as a traditional market researcher working in full service research firms. And uh, at one point in my career, pretty early on, I made a, a pretty hard pivot into the research tech space. So I, um, I created one of the first online research platforms for AC Nielsen and then left and um, started uh, one of the first big online research firms called OTX, um, specifically for 
uh, testing full screen uh, trailers and TV spots for the entertainment industry. And, you know, we really just hit the dot com boom perfectly back in the early 2000s and uh, scaled that company from zero to 30 million in less than three years. It was a, it was a really crazy ride. Uh, sold that to a private equity firm um, and then again to Ipsos. Uh, and after that, I went and started a data visualization platform company. I sold that to Decipher, came on to Decipher as a partner, um, took that firm into the software licensing space, and we sold that um, company to Focus Vision and um, Thompson Street Advisors at the end of 2014. And so when I exited Decipher, I thought, gosh, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm too young to stop working, uh, and I really, I really love to work. Uh, and so... I, um, I spent some time kind of going through this, this exercise that, um, Marcus Buckingham created. I don't know if you're familiar with Marcus Buckingham. He's kind of a social psychologist. Yeah. He's got a really interesting book. Okay. So I'm going to just tell you this little story about Marcus Buckingham because I think it's, uh, I think it's a really, you know, it's a good career exercise to go through. So Marcus Buckingham has this whole premise that, um, that the whole idea of practice makes perfect is, um, is, um, misguided. Uh, and you know, if you grew up like me, a kid in the eighties, that's pretty much all you heard was practice makes perfect practice makes perfect. And Marcus Buckingham says, eh, forget that. Um, if you're not good at something, I still say that to my kids. Do you Trish, say that? I still use oh, that line no. with my kids. Yes. Okay. okay. So you're about to reeducate me on uh, parenting. As well, I am. I'm going to blow that theory out of the water. So, um, <laughs> well, I guess Marcus Buckingham is, but his, his theory is, you know, if you're not good at something, you probably don't enjoy it either, <laughs> you know, and so why not focus on the activities that you enjoy and that you excel at? Um, and when you, you find that intersection, you know, that's, and particularly within work, that's when you kind of um, get into this state of what's called flow. And I, there have been a bunch of business books written on flow and it's kind of that perfect, you know, if you're having a really good day at work and everything's coming together and you feel energized by, you know, that's kind of the perfect um, the, per- the perfect sort of feeling you have when you're excelling at something. And so anyway, so um, Marcus Buckingham wrote this book called The Truth About You. And um, in it, there's this exercise where for a week, you write down everything that you did that you loved uh, and everything that you did that you loathed. Um, and at the end of the week, you kind of look at that and um, it provides you some direction in the types of activities and tasks that you like doing. And so um, I went through that activity and I realized, you know, all of the things that I really loved doing on a day-to-day basis were, um, you know, were related to scaling companies. You know, what are the challenges that come with building a, a business? And then having done it several times, you know, what are all the missteps that, you know, clients can avoid by working with someone like me who has done it multiple times and had successful exits? Um, and so that's where I kind of came up with the idea of, launching this growth strategy consultancy, which was, hey, if I could just spend all my time working with other founders and helping them scale and monetize their companies, well, that would just be the most fun that I could have every day. So I've been doing it for a little over four years now. Excellent. And what a, what a great way to find some inspiration from a book like that yeah. as well. And it, I, I know uh, Ray Pointer it, tells me never to tell people to read books because no one reads anymore, which I find fascinating because I read all the time. Um, but it's a really small book. You can probably read it in an hour. It's that quick. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, good. Well, you know what? I keep getting told that everyone listens to books these days rather than reading yeah. books, but I just, I can't get over the feeling that I just love to turn the page and just to have something in my hand whilst I'm yeah. reading it. I'm glad to hear um, you're a book traditionalist yeah. because, um, 
I don't like <laughs> e-readers and people make fun of me on the plane like, ooh, an actual book, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I can't stand e-readers. And I've tried reading on iPads and things as well, but I just I just prefer the feel and the look of a good yeah. book, you know, good paper or hardback book. It's always the yeah, way for agree. me. Um, but but so so your career then, I guess, you've, you've been at the kind of intersection of where uh, tech has overlapped with marketing and how the two have come together to create value. And you've used that multiple times to build and sell businesses, which is, which is phenomenal, really. Um, you've kind of ridden that wave as technologies really come into the marketing world rapidly over the last, what, 10, yeah. 20 years. So um, it, it's great that you've, I guess, used that opportunity to, to build and scale. And, and now you're using those skills to to help others um, which is really what I want to have a look at I kind of explore a little bit today because I think you know you see agencies get to a certain size or just marketing businesses get to a certain size and then going beyond that's really really tough so I guess it would be great just to get your take on you know what do you think the key ingredients are of an agency that's or a business that can get beyond that initial plateau of they've got to the certain a million pounds, for example, or a million dollars or 20 employees. And then it's that next step of growth. What What are those kind of vital ingredients that can empower you to, to take yeah. that next step? I mean, hey, there's, you know, there's so many different laws of growth and um, different strategies you use for different parts of the business. But I think the, the one thing that I see hold businesses back the most, frankly, are the founders. <laughs> and it's more, it's more about <laughs> behaviors than it is about oh, they didn't adopt the right technology or they missed this thing in the marketplace. Um, mostly what I find is that there are unhealthy or unproductive behaviors going on in the company that keep it from growing. Um, so give me some Yeah, examples. I'll give you some examples. Um, the, the first is for a lot of founders, they're quarterbacks. You know, they are great at everything. Um, they can do the work. Um, they can sell. They understand the technology they might be working on. Uh, and their biggest issue is that they cannot back away from the day-to-day -day enough to focus on the right activities they need to in order to grow the business. And I call this the difference between working on the business and working in the business. And this is, yeah, Absolutely. this is the problem with a lot of yeah. founding teams, though, is that they're so used to, you know, when you're in the very early stages of the business, of course, you're doing both. You're trying to build it. You're in it day-to-day -day because you can't afford to hire people or um, maybe you, you have hired people, but you know, that day-to-day -day involvement is still necessary. But at, at some point, people have to start backing away from the day-to-day -day and really entrust the people that they hire and, you know, to do, to do that work. Um, and there was this really ridiculous article that was, I think it was on Fast Company or Forbes a couple weeks ago. And it was a CEO who was bragging about, you know, oh, I can do every job in the whole company. And if, unless you can do every job in your whole company, you shouldn't be running a, a company. Well, that's, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, there's only so many hours in the day. And, and that to me tells me that that CEO is not, not focused on the right activities, which are, you know, strategically building and growing the business. Um, so, so what are the, what are the key triggers that you see that are consistent across companies that do achieve growth that, that enables their, the founders to, to realize, you know what, I've got to step back here. I've got to allow myself more time to work on rather than in the business. Are there sort of commonalities between different uh, high growth companies where you see that? Um, well, I mean, I think the, I mean, I think the firms that aren't growing, you know, eventually there is sort of a come to Jesus moment where they realize they're not going to grow unless they let go of some things. Um, you know, what I, what I see in high growth companies 
you know, are CEOs that understand what their role is in the business, which is not to go around and micromanage people day to day. Um, you know, I think I, I meet a lot of CEOs that are perfectionists, but the, but the best ones are the folks that don't let perfect get in the way of good enough. And, and that's real tough for some people. Um, I think the, the firms that I see that are high growth have the right systems and the processes in place. So they understand how to use data to tune their own business performance. They're tracking the right metrics. Um, they're very measurement focused, uh, and they're very goal, goal oriented. So they set objectives and key results at the end of the, at the beginning of the year. And they're really monitoring that closely, um, throughout the year. Uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. Um, uh, you know, when I, when I think about the, the firms that I work with that are, you know, growing, growing rapidly, I think, you know, there's, there's three common attributes in addition to the ones that I, that I just mentioned. You know, the first is that they're really client centric. And by that, I mean, they're not just focused on bringing in new clients, but they understand that their entire client funnel has to be healthy. And they're really also very, very focused on existing client engagement. And, and that's a big mistake that I see a lot of folks making is that, they get very focused on bringing new clients in, but they're not servicing or paying attention to their existing clients. And so you end up with this kind of leaky sales funnel where you've got new clients coming in, mm. but guess what? You're ignoring them and now they're going out the other end of the funnel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a kind of churn rate, isn't it? If you don't deliver the service you're, you're required, you might be winning all this new business. But if you, if you lose a client every six months, it doesn't matter how many times you win a new client, you're always kind of trying to fill a yeah. bath to win the Well, and it's money. such a simple exercise to go through. You know, I uh, was doing a consulting gig for a, just a kind of one day reset for a company a couple months ago. And, you know, the CEO was like, I can't understand. We're bringing a new business, but we're just not growing. Well, they were bringing in 1.8 million of new business every year, but they were losing 3.5 million in existing client work. And all you have to do is like, literally, it's a 10 minute exercise in Excel. Pull all your clients from last year and all your clients from this year and look at the, di- <laughs> look at the Delta and the data. Um, yeah. <laughs> Super easy exercise. Yeah. That's that's interesting. You'd think that's that would be quite easy to spot that sort of thing, wouldn't you? But I guess perhaps he was too far removed from the client service. You know, he's working too much of a focus on the the new biz development rather than on the client service side. Yeah, I also think that when you work in a business day to day, you just it's it's easy just to get distracted by other activities and not pay attention to the metrics that are actually going to drive the growth of the company. Um, yeah, and and yeah, for a lot absolutely. of I always remember my first boss when I first started out in PR. He always said to me, yes. "What gets measured gets done." I yeah. don't think that was his original thinking, but uh, always stayed with me. If, if you're measuring the right metrics, that's where your focus will be. So perhaps, it, to some extent, then what you're seeing is people aren't measuring the metrics that are going to help them to grow their businesses. Yeah, and I think you know, I don't think that's intentional. I think some of it is just a lack of knowledge about which metrics are actually going to grow the business. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so with that in mind, then what are the key metrics that you look at when you talk to a client? Do you kind of instill some thinking into them as to what the metrics are they need to be looking at? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the first part of any engagement that I, you know, that I do is to go in and really establish like what are the objectives overall for the company and what are the key results that are going to drive those objectives being accomplished. So that's that's kind of step one. And from there, you know, once you have those objectives and key results defined. Then you go through and you create a list of KPIs that you're going to track on, you know, a monthly basis. And that, you know, even that is a process because people really confuse the difference between metrics and key performance indicators. <laughs> you know, 
metrics, a lot of times metrics are directional in nature. Like they'll, they'll tell you, are you headed in the right way to, to make the KPI happen? But they're not, they don't actually tell you anything. And a good example of like a, a metric is website hits. I, I can't even tell you how many people get excited about website hits. Well, website hits isn't the <laughs> KPI. Who cares how many people are coming to your website if they're not converting? So, yeah, <laughs> so the conversion so is the KPI. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, all I've been measured on the last, I don't know, four or five years has been how many leads have entered my sales funnel. Apart yeah. from that, nobody really cares about everything else. Yeah. It doesn't help to move your business forward. So it doesn't. Interesting. I mean, hey, if you're not, you know, obviously, a, you know, the website hits is a metric. If you're not getting any website hits, then you're not going to get any leads coming through. But the what the actual, you know, the, that key performance indicator is actually the the lead, not the not the hit. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I could totally totally relate to that. Okay. Yeah. So part of that yeah. is just okay, in, so- just a the part you know part of part of what I do is just come in and kind of just educate on hey here's you know here is what is actually going to drive the growth of your business and this is what we need to be looking at yeah, yeah excellent okay well, well I guess let's look back at those two factors though so we've got founders that are getting in the way of growth because they're too close to the business and then perhaps we've got people that have got the wrong KPIs or the wrong metrics so if we can correct those two things so if we get founders educated on as to what they need to do to scale to grow and scale and then we instill in them some idea as to what those metrics and KPIs are that align to their objectives then we've got some good foundations for growth there I guess yeah Um, so what else what are the other ingredients what else do you look for Um, or do you think that high growth companies have yeah I think I think um, having a what well what I call a competitive moat is really important um, you know, okay. Warren Buffett term, uh, kind of coined the term economic moat. Um, and it basically means, you know, do you have defensible space basically around your business? So how you've positioned yourself, what you do, uh, is that something really unique and special that you can market and sell against? And, uh, I've had a couple conversations with CEOs recently who are, you know, concerned that we might be heading toward another, uh, uh economic crisis. And if you go into a recession, of course, you, you want your business to be a must-have, not a nice-to-have, because any nice-to-have gets cut in a recession. <laughs> uh, and so uh, a lot of what I focus on is what is it you know, about, about a business that is special and unique? And I, I, I see this as being a really, a really big issue for a lot of full-service research firms, frankly where they're trying to be all things to all people. They work across all categories. They do all types of research. And, and I think people, people do that because they think, oh, well, if I do everything, then I'm going to get lots of business. And I find that, I know this is very counterintuitive, but I, I find that not to be the case. I, I find the more defined that you get in terms of what you do, the services, products, technology, whatever it is that you're selling, that you're delivering, the easier it is for clients to understand and to call you when they have a specific problem. So for instance, Absolutely. yeah. So for instance, there was a company that I was advising um, that was based in Los Angeles. That was a, just a kind of a generalist research firm. They weren't growing. Um, and then, you know, we did this exercise of trying to figure out, Hey, what's, you know, what do you guys do that's special and different? And what is the niche really that you can, um, that you can go into that really communicates the type of work that the, the work that you want to be getting. Um, and it really came down to shopper insights. They were shopper insights specialists. That was the work that they did, but they'd always been kind of nervous about really putting a stake in the ground around it. But as soon as they did that, their business started to grow because clients understood what, what the service was that they were providing and what types of business problems they solved. 
I can relate to this entirely. And I see this loads with agencies uh, over here as well, is that we're trying to be all things to all people. And when I had my Marcoms agency, it was certainly the case. We didn't specialize. We would talk to to anybody. And I guess the result of that is that you become kind of generic or vanilla and it becomes really hard to differentiate yourself in a market where it's full of other agencies doing the exact same thing. So once you, as you say, put a stake in the ground there and say, look, we're going to do shopper insights or we're going to be the agency that specializes in property or tech or, or, you know, choose a sector and choose a specialism, you then become the expert in that space. And you can start to build a, a positioning that's unique and differentiated in what is quite a competitive landscape of yeah. agencies and i think that's such an important part that uh, so many agencies you know you don't they don't get that right because they are too generic and they are too open to competition i suppose so i love the idea of a competitive mode uh, you know what are these what are those strategies you're using to defend yourself against the competition i guess yes exactly yeah. Okay. That's good. I think that's a lesson that, you know, it was quite painful for me to learn that one, but I see that, <laughs> I see that going on quite a lot. You know, we can do all things for all people. And, and I've, I found that a client side marketeers were increasingly and possibly are still increasingly looking for the specialists. I've got an issue in, I don't know, shopper insights, or I've got an issue in lead gen for uh, realtors, estate agents, you know, and it's those kind of people that can provide the solution that's specific to that space. They're the guys that I think are going to do well if there is a downturn. For sure. Well, and I think, I think it's kind of an interesting perspective too. Like I had one CEO say like, well, you know, well, then I'm passing up so much business that I, you know, that I, I could be getting. And the niche that you've suggested is so narrow and I don't think I can sustain a business off that. And well, I mean, you have to look at the, you know, and I'm just using market research as an example, but look at the insights industry. You know, it's a $44 billion industry. I'm, I'm quite sure that you can build a business off of a niche there. <laughs> There's plenty of money to go around. Um, yeah, it's a and, pretty big addressable market. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing I, I hear a lot is, oh, well, you know, I'm trying to compete against Ipsos and Kantar. Well, you're not actually competing against Ipsos and Kantar. You know, you're a sub $1 million firm and, you know, Kantar and Ipsos are two of the biggest research firms in the world. And not, not only that, but why would you really want to replicate that? that model because most of the firms, once they get to that size, are only growing through acquisition. They're not experiencing much organic growth anymore. So, you know, don't don't try to compete against the big boys in the same way that they're that they're running their businesses. You know, there's a lot of opportunity, um, you know, to really figure out what your what your niche is and and to grow exponentially based on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're in a different market space if you're a sub you know, $1 million firm versus the big guys, you know, it's a, it's a whole different world you're competing in really. Yeah. Um, you know, you're never going to be able to compete with the Ipsos or Cantars of this world because clients are looking for that big agency to work with. They aren't looking for the sub $1 million agency to work with, at least in my experience anyway. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So now we've got a competitive moat. And we've got a team that knows what they're doing in terms of their objectives and their targets. And we've got the founder out the way of his own uh, growth. Uh, what else do you see is common amongst uh, high growing agencies or businesses? So, uh, yeah, so there's um, uh, this Cindy Gallup who's a friend of mine. She's kind of this advertising legend. She has a, a whole theory about um, this idea of uh, collaborative competition, which is this idea that a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats. So, you know, don't, don't be worried about, partnering or collaborating with someone that you, you know, might be slightly competitive or is 
in a similar space as you, uh, a lot of times there are opportunities for technology integrations or strategic partnerships or, um, you know, other activities that benefit both businesses. And I think the, the really smart entrepreneurs that I see aren't going out and trying to create and build things entirely from scratch every time, but they're looking around for opportunities to partner technologies they can integrate. You know, they're not so egocentric that they're kind of thinking, oh, I have to build all this myself and I have to do it all myself and I can't partner with anyone on it. Um, yeah, I, I I go with that entirely. I guess you could call it, or I've heard it called co-opetition. Yeah, well. exactly. So, yeah. And I, I, yeah. And I, I remember... A few years ago, um, a, a colleague or an associate of mine, I suppose, he ran an IT support business and he was raving about the idea of networking with his peers that also ran IT support businesses who traditionally you might see as your competition. But he got so much value out of being in the same environment with people that had shared his same uh, challenges, same pains, knew the business uh, and could you know, help him to develop his business in co-opetition that it was well worthwhile for him. And one of the things... I've been doing over here anyway is, is to create a community called Agency Squared, which is for agency owners that want to have that kind of peer-to-peer -peer support environment so that they can look for opportunities to uh, maybe help each other, but also perhaps to collaborate on projects as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think, I, I yeah. think it's also, it's become more important too, because when you look at like the MarTech kind of stack or ecosystem, and even, you know, now this advent of all this research technology, there are so many unique applications and platforms now that do very specific things. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's not like when I started out in research tech in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, you kind of just had a data collection platform. Now there's, now there's platforms for coding open ends and there's platforms with secondary data that you can do predictive modeling off of. And there's text analytics platforms and, um, you know, platforms for collecting video open ends and, platforms for doing interactive chat with with respondents in a virtual focus room <laughs> you know there's so many of them now that yeah. you know anyone who's trying to build everything themselves in-house or isn't figuring out how to partner and collaborate even with competitors in some instances i think is really missing a lot of opportunity yeah i think so too and uh, i think that particularly when you're looking at scale. So I guess growth and scale are two different things, right? You can grow a company, but to really scale it in that kind of hockey stick fashion that people look for when they're looking at really exciting uh, startup type companies, yeah. you know, you, you, that's difficult in a in a consulting world because typically you're selling people's time and you can't get more people's time unless you hire more that's people. That's correct. Um, so you've got to look for ways to scale that are beyond just having more people, right? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So how are you seeing people doing that? I hear, I hear about this a lot. Uh, I'll go into a full service, you know, consulting gig and people are like, well, well, we're a services based business. And so we can't create a budget because we don't, you know, it's all ad hoc. We don't really know what we're getting from month to month. Um, and, um, you know, we, you know, we don't have any kind of recurring revenue model. Eh. Or, and they're resistant, you know, like, oh, well, you can't create a recurring revenue model. Well, actually, you can. There's lots of opportunities for creating recurring revenue models, whether that's a syndicated study or tracking study or, um, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, you work out some sort of other contractual, you know, relationships with clients. I think that the key there is that, you, you know, you're, you're trying to find ways of assuring that you're, you know, you're not doing this very project-based transactional um, kind of business where you, you know you, you've got no no predictive revenue at, at all and I, I 
I think I see this a lot. Um, and this is one of the things I've gotten really good about kind of sussing out before I get into an engagement is the difference between a lifestyle company and a growth company. <laughs> and, yeah, and there's okay. nothing wrong with lifestyle companies, but you run them very differently than you run a growth company. Very differently. How so? You know, a lifestyle, lifestyle company, you know, a lot of times like the founders are taking distributions out of the company. They're not investing that much in sales and marketing activity. And they, you know, they might be doing, you know, even 10 million a year. They're running a great business. They've got a great lifestyle. You know, they're going on vacation four weeks a year and they're taking a million out of the business every year and um, they're happy. That's not a growth business though. <laughs> a growth business is one where you're reinvesting capital in, you're strategically looking at, you know, how are you going to scale the business beyond this kind of ad hoc revenue model? Uh, and you're, you know, you're doing the right activities. You're investing in marketing and sales and, um, you know, you're not, you're not taking a bunch of money out, out of the company because your payday is coming five years from now. Um, and that's the difference. You know, a lot of people get sucked into taking a lot of money out of the company in the moment because it looks attractive and, and you've probably gone many years without making much money as a founder. Uh, but yeah, from my perspective, I always want to reinvest that money back in the business for growth because at some point, you know, three to five years down the line, you're going to sell it. And that's, that's when you're going to make all your money is in the equity that you have. That, that makes sense. And, and I've seen that as well in terms of, you know, when you're running a business and there's, there's cash, there's capital in the business and you, you can take it out or you've got that choice. Do I take it out and do I go on holiday or do I reinvest that into my business to, to grow? And I think that's the point, isn't it? It's the difference between lifestyle and a growth business is that if you are in a lifestyle business, you're going to have that holiday. You're going to have that good paycheck. You're, you're not going to want to reinvest that and wait five years for that to, to reappear. I, and I can't even tell you, those are some of the most painful consulting conversations that I have to have with people because they never like hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> Who would? Never. <laughs> hey, Who would like you to need to that? cut your salary in half and stop taking distributions. <laughs> yeah, it never goes over well. <laughs> yeah, I can well imagine. I can imagine. But uh, I guess as well, and you've mentioned it quite a bit already, is about the application of tech and you're seeing tech you know, throughout in your world, the market research world. And obviously, you know, through where I'm coming from, which is more of a Marcom side of the side of the equation. Yeah. You know, there's lots of opportunity for applying tech and using tech as a way to, I guess you could say, not necessarily selling time for money. You know, you've got another reason to generate revenues that's not tied to your time. Uh, and it might be through, you know, hosting data or website hosting or whatever that tech looks like there's a whole raft of new tech that enables agencies to create that incremental revenue they can use to give themselves some stability and some uh, i guess forward visibility as to what those that income might be outside of the project work for sure yeah perfect okay all right so so that's making sense so scaling is about not necessarily relying on the traditional sale of services but using other opportunities or other avenues for generating revenues yeah, and don't get me wrong. You can, you know, you can sell, you know, you can sell and scale, scale services for sure. Um, it's just having a, a revenue model that's not so ad hoc in nature. So, and that, you know, that's where people run into problems with predictive revenue. And part, you know, part of that is, um, you know, not not selling in a transactional nature. And and secondly, you know, forming these really deep client relationships where you're not nervous about whether or not you're going to get the next project. Um, and, you know, you're so closely aligned with your client and their objectives that they really look at you as a partner instead of just a service provider. 
Yeah, and I think that's the holy grail for for uh, marketing service providers is to be seen as that partner with their client, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and then you you kind of you switch from being into uh, hunting mode to farming mode and just making sure that you manage that account and you grow that account over a number of years is a really, really great position to be in. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of agencies don't get the difference between hunting and farming. You know, hunting, you're bringing in new clients. And then farming is that, you know, how are you going to grow that relationship over time? And I think, you know, I've been really successful in, in growing client relationships because they're very personal to me. You know, I know people's birthdays and, you know, when their kids' bar mitzvah is and, you know, what, you know, where they go on vacation and, you know, what their favorite snack bar is. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, people forget they're doing business with actual humans that have, have lives and, um, uh, interests outside of work. And, and we don't spend enough time, you know, on, on the individual and really forming those, those deep bonds with people that are necessary to, create long-lasting relationships. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that, uh, and I had this chat with another one of my guests on the show, uh, Lena Robinson, we were talking about the idea that actually you know, hunting and farming are two different skill sets anyway. It's probably not Very. the same person that's going to deliver both of those, unless rarely, it's still yeah. the founder of the business that's delivering that. Yeah, rarely. Yeah. I mean, certainly in my career in big agencies, I, I really enjoyed the the farming side and growing accounts. So I was really good at that. And then when I set up my own Marcom shop, having to be the hunter as well, I found really tough. It's tough. Uh, but, yeah, it's a different world. It's a different environment. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. it's very different. And I, you know, I also think that a lot a lot of folks are more comfortable with farming because you know you use the word sales, and it's a really you know horrible, scary word. And you think of some you know some <laughs> Some some guy standing out in a used car lot, you know, shucking, you know, <laughs> used cars at you. And I, I think, I, you know, I've always kind of thought about it as relationship building and client development. And I'm also really persistent. You know, I've had I've had some clients and deals that took me literally years to close, years. Um, uh, um, and it's I think I find that in sales, you know, one of the big indicators of success is, is persistence. Um, yeah, agreed. People give up way too early. I don't know where I heard this, but recently I, I heard somebody else saying the difference between su uh, success and failure is persistence. I forget who said that, mm -hmm. but it made real sense to me. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, it's it's interesting because somebody had asked me, I was at a dinner one time and one of the CEOs of a company said, you know, why do you think your business has been more successful than others? And I, 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 I said, honestly, I just, it's not, I'm not any smarter or better than anyone else. I just outwork everyone. Honestly, <laughs> it's true. I'm just really persistent. Um, and you know, when I set my mind to something, I really, you know, I really get after it. So persistence is key. Okay. That makes sense. I'm totally on board with that as well. Okay. So that's some good ingredients there. There's some good ideas for what to look for. Um, if we're looking to grow and scale our businesses, I think that some of that, I, I would imagine people have heard that before in terms of get the founder out of the way you're, you're in the way of growing the business. But I think sometimes it's some, you know, some bitter medicine to take to actually make sure you actually make that step and get out of the way of growing your business. I don't think that's yeah, easy. It's, yeah. It's hard to let go of things. I mean, it's been hard. It's been hard for me. Um, and I think, I think once you start doing it and you see the company start to grow, then it verifies, you know, it, it mm. really validates that you're moving in the right direction. And so I think, you know, find, find things that you do feel comfortable letting go of and, um, you know, and, and 
and start making steps toward that. It does, doesn't have to be an overnight transformation. Um, you know, when I'm working with clients, I'm basically asking them to shift 10% of their time every month over a course of six to seven months. Because you're not going to go overnight, you know, 90% working in the business, 10% on. You're not going to flip that overnight. You've got to, it takes time to get to that place. And oftentimes there's a lot of training and mentoring that has to happen internally for that to happen. Yeah, agreed. And I, and I think time is the other big thing there, actually, is people underestimate, underestimate how long it takes to grow a business and how much time you have yeah. to pour into or pour into it, you know, because yeah. quite often starting out is the easy part. And you, know, you get your first few quiet clients, you know, reasonably easy. I, I, I got my first few clients with my agency really quickly. And I thought, wow, this is this is great. This is easy. I should have done this sooner. <laughs> <laughs> and then when and then the rude awakening out, happened <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and the, and the whole world changes and you realize it's it's a much bigger uh, adventure than you thought it was going to be which is yeah. also very exciting but I guess interestingly as well because you've obviously sold a few businesses you've mentioned that at the start of the this conversation so you have to be used to the idea of letting go if your ultimate exit is to actually sell the business right yes <laughs> otherwise yeah. you're going to find that transition really tough too Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, that investors and, and buyers are looking for firms that are not 100% reliant on the founders. Um, you know, because at some point, yeah, you're going to sell your business and you might have an earnout or a period you're going to go on with the company. But I mean, ideally, you're going to exit at some point. Um, so not, not everything can be 100% reliant on you as an individual or you don't have yeah. a, you know, you don't have a business that somebody wants to buy. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, if it, they want to buy it with, without you in the way, I suppose. Yeah. And I guess the one thing that we, I think you mentioned it earlier, we talked a bit about systems and processes there. So I, uh, what's your feeling there in terms of the importance of systemizing what's happening within an environment that is, you know, generally everything is um, custom bespoke, creative, you know, it's a difficult world to systemize, right? Yeah. I mean, I think when I think of, of systems, I'm not thinking of the actual work product, but I'm thinking more of systemizing the business. And there's a, there's a big difference there. And I think this is, this is also where a lot of research firms get hung up and a lot of marketing firms get hung up. It's like, you know, you've got the business of doing the research or doing the marketing, and then you've got the business of running the business. It's two different things. Um, and, and when I'm, you know, when I'm looking at firms, firms that have the right systems and processes in place, you know, they're really built to grow. You know, they're using a good CRM system. They're using a good marketing automation platform. Um, you know, they've got a KPI reporting system in place. Uh, they, you know, they're understanding how to use data to tune their own business. And th that's what I mean by the right systems and processes. Like they're not, you know, they've gone through and done an operational system, you know, um, uh, and, and they're not, there's no bottlenecks kind of in their operational process that are contingent on like one person or one process. And if that breaks, then everything stops. So, okay. yeah, it's kind of looking, looking across the, you know, the, the infrastructure of the business and figuring out, you know, do we have the right, the right pieces in place, uh, in order to, in order to really scale. Mm, okay. That makes sense. And do you, have you seen that that is a, a kind of important criteria for people that are looking to buy up, um, uh, to acquire agencies? Do you, are they looking oh, specifically sure. at the kind of, yeah. Okay. For sure. The, you know, the other thing to, to realize, and I, I bring this up a lot to founders now because I, I just got my investment banking license. So I'm doing M&A now as well. Um, okay. Yeah. So, which has been a really interesting transition and a good, you know, a good um, natural evolution of my, my consulting practice. But 
you know, when you go into an M&A process, there, you know, there's a pretty significant data room you have to build in the due diligence process that you go through. And so, you know, the more, the more that you can do to systemize and, you know, sort of have your ducks in a row before you go into that, that process, the easier that it is. And certainly, you know, buyers are looking for people that have mature businesses. And by that, I mean, mature in terms of how they report financial data and how they manage, you know, sales um, and how they're tracking the growth of the company. So if you're thinking from day one that your exit is an ultimate trade sale, then it's worthwhile having a, you know, getting those systems and processes mapped out fairly early doors so that you can ingrain them within the business. Absolutely. And, you know, I would also Mm. say I I see a lot of people kind of skimp on things at the beginning because they don't want to spend that much money. Um, And I, I get that. I'm all for conserving money early on in the stage of the business. But oftentimes what I see is that people kind of cobble together these kind of crap software packages over a period of time. And then they get to the point in the business where they really have to move onto a more robust system. And like, for instance, I had a couple clients that were using PipeDrive as a CRM system, and then they just couldn't get anything that they needed off of PipeDrive. And they had to transition over to Salesforce. You know, that's a really painful transition. So better to start with Salesforce yes. from the beginning rather than... Yeah. You know, and yeah. Hey, I get it. It's expensive. You know, it's, you know, <laughs> it, I get it. But man, it is hard to transition when you, um, you know, when you're four or five million dollars in business. It's a tough transition and it's, it's an expensive transition. Um, yes. You know, yeah, yeah. it's a lot more expensive, you know, to transition all of your data off of one platform onto another and set up all, you know. It's an, it's a huge distraction for the company as well. And so, you know, I would say more than anything else, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a Salesforce brand evangelist because I just love their platform so much. But hey, you don't have to use Salesforce off the ground, but it used, at least use something robust like HubSpot or Salesforce or, you know, one of the leading CRM and marketing automation platforms. I'm, I deal with companies sometimes that are, oh, we're going to build our own CRM system. Please don't do that. <laughs> Please don't build <laughs> your own CRM. Why would you? Yeah. <laughs> you got to be crazy to do that. I, I think um, a lot of that is, I know you were saying that people don't want to spend the money. I think that's to do with a short-term or a long-term mindset. You know, if, if, you, if you're only thinking six to 12 months ahead and thinking, is this going to survive six to 12 months? I'm not sure yet. I'm only going to spend $10 a month on my CRM per user. Or if I'm not worried about the short-term, because I know over the 10-year time horizon, this is going to be a fantastic success, then you're more comfortable investing that money at the outset. Absolutely. And I see that I see that a lot with, uh, if I look at some of the clients I've worked with that are uh, agencies or investors coming over from China to the UK, for example, they have a much longer time frame in mind for when they want to see their project mature, when they want to start seeing um, profits coming out of the business. They're much more relaxed with you know, two, three years with very limited revenues or, limit, or making a loss. Whereas talk to somebody over here in the UK and it's like, I want to, I want to break even straight away. I want to be, I want to, get money coming out of this business within six months. And that gives you a very different mindset about the way you invest in your business. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I see people, I see people investing a lot in their business at the beginning, but in the wrong things, you know, like they're investing in these great desk chairs and an amazing office space, but then they're skimping on the CRF. <laughs> it's always fascinating to me. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Wrong priorities. Yeah. Wrong priorities. Yeah. Uh, good. Well, there's loads of loads of really interesting stuff in there. And, and I, I'm just looking at the clock here and I'm thinking you've probably got a day's worth of work to do still. Uh, and before, before you go, I really want to just talk to you a bit about diversity because I know that you're a massive champion for uh, women in the market research industry. So I just wanted to get your take on 
um, what's happening in that area in terms of do you think that we're we're getting there in terms of equality because from my point of view having worked in marketing for 20 years I've always been surrounded by incredibly smart talented women in that environment and I think that um, but but I've obviously got a different point of view on that being male so it'd be great to get your sense as to how has the industry evolved now are we getting to kind of parity yeah well I would caveat that by saying that of course, there are a lot of women in the marketing industry and in the insights industry. However, they're not at the most senior level positions in the company. And that's, that's where there's not parity. You know, when gotcha. you look at the, okay. you know, the largest marketing agencies, the largest insights agencies, those companies are not being run by women. Less than 10% are. So, you know, what I'm looking at is, you know, how do we get more women into the C-suite? How do we how do we create career paths and make sure that women understand what is available and um, and possible for them in their careers? And how do we get more diverse perspectives on industry stages at conferences, you know, on podcasts like this, um, so that we do we do have more diverse perspectives? And you know, really, the impetus for me starting Women in Research was, you know, in the early stages of my career, I worked almost exclusively with women, and now I work almost exclusively with men. Um, and, and that progression kind of just happened as I got more and more senior. And as, as I was f- focused more on the business of growing companies versus on, specifically mm-hmm. on marketing or working on research. So, um, but you know, I think that, Hey, have we illuminated a, a problem? Yes. Are people more aware of it? And are women getting more of a voice in the boardroom and on industry stages? Absolutely. But in terms of par- pay parity, we still have a long way to go. I will, I will literally be dead before we reach pay parity in the marketing and/or insights industry. What a what what a what a sad statement yeah. that is. We're, we've got a long way to go. A long way to go. Yeah, and this is something that we measure at Wire every year. So we, you know, we do an industry um, survey. Uh, we ask about, um, you know, we ask about job level and um, and uh, income. And so we're, we're tracking it. And so we can just, in the last five years, we can, we can see movement in the right direction. But again, it's glacial, the pace. Uh, good. Yeah. Well, it's great to see that there are organizations like, you know, Wire that are making a difference here. Uh, and I know there's uh, over here as well in the UK, there are lots of different um, women in business organizations that are making huge, uh, huge impact on that. And I think it's an important movement. So it, uh, it's a shame that it, you, you see it so far off that there's some parity there, at least in terms of pay packets. Yeah. But, uh, you know, certainly the, the, yeah. the world is, um, there's an awful lot of very smart women that um, I've worked with over the years that I have no doubt at some point will make it to the top echelons there, as it were. Um, yeah, good. Yeah. All right. Well, look, I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really, really interesting. Uh, I, I would love to just ask you two final questions. One is, where do you go? Where do you look for ideas and inspiration in terms of are there books you read? Are there journals you read, podcasts you listen to, YouTube channels you love? And then um, secondly, if people are keen to pick up the conversation, they want to have a conversation about how to grow and scale their marketing business or just business, uh, how should people reach out and get in touch with you? Yeah. Well, I'll address the book question first, because as I mentioned earlier, I'm a pretty avid reader. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of mix it up between, you know, business and and leisure books, but um, I, you know, I love anything that is, you know, kind of marketing or, or tech or growth related. So, you know, some of my, some of my favorite books are books by Jonah Berger, who's a Wharton, you know, Wharton School of Business marketing professor. He's got, um, he's got great, 
uh, you know, great books on influencers and, um, you know, how to create products that go viral, which I think are, um, really interesting. I love, um, Paul Smith. I don't know if you've read any of his books, but, um, he's all about selling with a story. Um, he's got some really interesting sales books that I think are, um, are interesting. And then, you know, if you're on more of the operations side of businesses, um, Anise Kavanaugh has written a really great book called Contagious Culture that I think is just kind of a must read. Um, oh, that's cool. and then right now I'm reading, um, Tiffany Bova's, um, new book. So Tiffany Bova is the, I think she's the chief growth evangelist for Salesforce. And she wrote a book called Growth IQ that I'm just have completely gotten obsessed with. And I read it probably for two hours every night right now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So th- that's, those are the books I'm reading. And then podcasts, you know, my two, my two favorite podcasts are Masters of Scale, um, which is Reed Hoffman's podcast. Yeah, and then yeah. how I, how I built this. I, I just love it. Yeah. How I built this. How I built this, yeah, okay. yeah, I haven't heard that yeah. One. Guy Raz is the podcaster, and um, yeah, he interviews um, founders about you know really how they how they built their companies. Yeah, oh, fascinating I'm, podcast. I'm yeah. definitely checking that out, and I'm definitely going to buy the Contagious Culture book because we've talked a lot recently on some of the shows about culture being a real big differentiator for service based and agency businesses. Uh, when you get the culture right, you get the team right, it gives you a platform to really grow. So that yeah. sounds like a fantastic book. Oh, uh, great. So loads yeah. of loads of good examples in there. Okay. Yes. And then, and so then, if you want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to uh, say hello? Yeah, you can reach out to me at Kristen at scalehouse.consulting or you can just go to scalehouse.consulting and um, there's a contact form on, on that website. Yeah. Or on LinkedIn. Thanks. Always happy to accept new connections on LinkedIn. Uh, excellent. I'm not sure where connectors are. I might just take you up on that. Uh, test right. you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> oh dear. Kristen, it's been a real delight, a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm glad we've had the opportunity to catch up after quite a few years. Uh, thanks yeah, for coming nice. on the show. Uh, and I'd love to, I will definitely stay in touch. I'm going to follow what happens with your, with the new brand on Scalehouse. And uh, hopefully we can speak again in a few years time. You can give me an update as to where things have got to with the wire project. And, and hopefully we're, we're getting closer to parity at that stage. Um, but thanks again as well for all the ideas and advice for how to grow and scale a business i know that's going to be of value to uh, to our listeners yeah i appreciate you having me on it's been a lot of fun